Are we doing all right? You know what I like about you guys? Everything. I'm so glad that we're not uh, gathered in the first church of the Frigidaire where it's so cold you skate up and down the aisles. It just feels like God is with us. We can bear ourselves as sons and daughters in his presence, pour out our hearts in, in genuine, rich adoration and affection. And we do that in love because he first loved us and he's found a way to melt our hearts through the cross of Jesus, remove our sins and our stains, and then move into our lives all the way in progressively and transform us into his own likeness. And if that's not enough, he wants to put us on display as a billboard of his mercy before a watching world. My dear, it just gets better and better. And yes, I'm still a young man, I'm only 68, so don't get all like, crockety thinking the guy is like in a wheelchair or whatever it is. I am going to share with you tonight a message that has kept me vibrant and alive and has anchored me. I want to speak to you. I want to trust God through the preaching of his word to heat something up again in our lives. I've called the message tonight the promise and the oath. And we're going to look at uh, the narrative of God's redemptive purposes between Genesis chapter 12 right through to Hebrews. We're not going to look at every book in the Bible. I just want to bookend some of the rich theology. How many of you know we need to be anchored more than we need to be excited? Uh, I'm, I'm the guy who gives my ministry to anchoring and calling people to the big picture of God's redemptive purposes. But I know how to get excited and I was like a kid there. I did a few little twirls and then got my back into, okay. So I'll be okay for the rest of the week. Just relax. Okay. Father, we want to thank you for the gift of life in your son, Jesus. Thank you for the scandal of grace. Thank you that tonight you want to anchor us, secure us, and remind us of this ancient faith and this grace in which we stand that flows from it. I pray that we would continue to worship you in the speaking and the hearing of your word, that we'll be under your word and not over it, and that we'd be renewed substantially, and that we would stand shoulder to shoulder in this (laughs) non-conference, being wonderfully enriched, strengthened, and prepared for what you have for us. Turn our next two days, Lord, into a wonderful sense of being launched, even if it's back into what we're doing, but with more intentionality, with a greater sense of conviction around why we do what we do. All this for your namesake and for the glory of God, and everybody said, yeah. Yeah. You all said, yeah. Yeah. Okay, let's take up an offering. (laughs) No, I'm just trying to speak American. They say... (laughs) Guys, they say that Christianity started in Palestine as a relationship. Then it moved to Greece, where it became an idea. And then it went to Rome, where it became an institution. And then it came to America, where it became an enterprise. Okay, I'm just teasing you guys. 
we're talking about the other guys, not us in the room. We're lovers of Jesus. We are broken by the gospel. We're not in it for what we can get. We're in it because of what he's done. Cool. I just got a message. I want to test how far I could stretch the liberty that I have tonight. I could see some of the sort of mature ones getting a little bit nervous, and they were about to uninvite me on Sunday, but I'm preaching in this church on Sunday, and it's too late to uninvite me. I'm dangerous and on a mission. <laughs> okay, silliness aside. Let's read together from uh, on the screen, if you can, just read out loud with me. Let's own this passage because it captures the genesis of what God intended to do in and through Abraham ultimately into history. So read it out loud with me. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. What a passage. Just remember, chapter 11, God had come to the nations of the earth that were, had gathered together at Babel to create their own tower, to ascend to those kind of uh, horoscope kind of gods, and he, 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 he booted the tower down and scattered all the nations. In one, he scattered nations under a judgment, confused uh, languages. It's interesting that like, then he's uh, directing Abraham and Terah to leave the land and start moving in a new direction, and no longer has God, uh, no, no, long, no sooner has God scattered the nations, he announces a plan to gather the nations in a very, very strategic way. So let's do a little quiz, and uh, I'm, I'm just banking that some of us are going to be able to get the answer right on this. Okay. Now, who is the first person the Bible says heard the gospel? Galatians chapter 3, because God foresaw that he would justify the Gentiles through faith, he announced the gospel in advance to... Abraham, guys, it was there. What is going on in this thing? Who's the first person the Bible says heard the gospel? Well, he's the guy that's clearly, I know there were types and shadows and Eve and all of that. That's not like altogether wrong, but you're wrong. You get a, you get a D minus for that. Okay, who's the first person to get the Great Commission? Oh, give that person an all-expenses-paid trip to Mauritius, care of Sean Craig. Okay. Who's the most spoken-about person from the Old Testament in the Gospels? Okay, this is getting a little bit boring, isn't it? Who's the most spoken-about Old Testament person in the Epistles? Who's the first person to blow the Great Commission? <laughs> it's important that we understand that we are tracking with Abraham tonight. We, we're tracking. This is foundational to 
what God wants to say to us tonight. So this, these three verses here represent this, this promise. Others call it a covenant or the Abrahamic covenant. And uh, a lot of what uh, I'm sharing to you, with you over the years, uh, I was exposed to God. Who's heard of the book uh, Eternity in Their Hearts by Don Richardson? Well, it's a book that we need to shake the dust off and bring it back. But Don Richardson was a missiologist, and he took a deep dive. And, and a lot of what I'm sharing shaped me for the last 30 years plus of my life. And whenever I felt like a little bit of a purpose vacuum or felt like I was drifting and just everything felt like a little bit more froth and bubble, I'd come back to Genesis and, uh, and then track the story. And we're going to do a little mini version of that tonight. And... Uh, I'm trusting that the Lord will help me to serve you well in this. Don Richardson calls this Abrahamic covenant and the story of how it unravels through the whole of the Old Testament into the New Testament. He calls it the spinal column of biblical revelation. If you want to understand, when you look at creation in general, that's what they call general revelation. It's God showing us, showing off his glory in general Revelation, even in the in the uh, in, in the preservation of scriptures in a general way, there's a lot of general revelation. It's inspired by the Holy Spirit. It's there for us. But within general revelation, it's like, you know, light particles are like photons. And if you got a whole lot of photons just randomly moving around in a in a park, uh, that's the equivalent of there's a bit of light. There's general revelation. But if you can get those photons all lined up in a straight line. They form what is called laser light, and laser light burns cataracts off eyes. It brings clarity of vision and perspective, and there's a sense in which many of us live our Christian life of general, too much general uh, revelation. God wants us to, to, to start to understand His specific way of how He's acted into history, and he wants us to line up with that, and he wants to burn the cataracts of our eyes and give us clarity of vision. The other thing I love about Abraham, he is the prototype Christ follower. He is the prototype missionary. Abraham has a faith that justifies. He has a faith that obeys. He has a faith that sacrifices, and he has a faith that goes not knowing. He's going not knowing. It's a beautiful picture. So I want to just mention to you some of the marks of this, this covenant that God made with this guy called Abram. Number one, the Abrahamic covenant is universal in its appeal. You say, what are you talking about, Rigby? I'm so glad you've asked that question. But it's, it's the only covenant in anthropology which has the whole world in its sight. The whole nations, all the nations of the world are in sight. All the sort of so-called uh, covenants of pagan religions are very geographically specific. This thing is so big. God is saying to Abraham, through you and your seed, through you and your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. If that's the case, then this covenant reveals something about the author. What God is this that would target bringing his blessing and his grace and his goodness to the whole world. It tells us, first of all, that he's not some petty tribal deity 
of a mountain somewhere or a river somewhere or a valley somewhere. This is a God who has the whole world and all people groups in his sights. Wow. The third thing, this covenant that God makes with Abraham is not initiated from Abraham. It's initiated from Yahweh to Abram. It's a covenant between the greater and the lesser. And if that's true, and God has initiated the covenant, God's got a problem because he's always got to bring Abram around, and you're going to see how this plays out. He's always got to bring Abram around to his infinitely perfect ways. God says things like Abraham or Rigby, your name is Rigby, but my name is Yahweh, I change not. Your name is Rigby, you will change. I have got a way to get you around, and we're going to see this unfold, so keep your safety belts on. So God, by initiating this covenant, has a very serious problem. He has to make sure that he fulfills this covenant because his whole reputation in history is at stake if he does not fulfill this covenant. Number four. That demonstrates that God has chosen Abraham purely on the basis of grace alone. He's a sun god, moon god, worshiping pagan. He is, how many of you remember that song in kids' ministry? Father Abraham had many sons, many sons had... Well, you know, guys, it's not such a great boast. <laughs> guys, we're made of the same stuff. Don't, don't be too quick to say, well, he's an, he's an idol worship. Guys, any, all the good things we take out of this life and we make ultimate things, those are idols. All the stuff that we bow the knee before and give disproportionate affection to. They are things that displace God's true role in our lives. And many of us, here's the good news, is that we were elected. We were elected by God before the foundation of the world, before we'd done anything good or bad. God had our names in His book of, uh, his book of life. He had written it in there. God calls and has idolaters in his sights. God, it is scandalously good. I'm so relieved by that. I'm so relieved because I was a brilliant sinner. I don't mean brilliant as in like a good thing. I just, I mean it like, like, I just broke all the commandments before Jesus met me on a road as I read John's gospel and it just turned my world upside down. I was really good at sinning. But God was even better at saving. We sinned it abound. Grace abounded even more. God chose Abraham by grace and set the tone for every single future son or daughter who would be the seed of Abraham. They would only get in to the act through sheer grace and mercy of God. Number five. As this covenant began to unfold into Israel's history, it went from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob 
here's what's important. Just when various individuals in the unfolding of this covenant failed, it did not negate the fulfillment of what God had said because he, he initiated. He is, his integrity is on the line. And failure to observe the covenant did not negate the covenant. There's no plan B. There was a loss of inheritance within the covenant by those who went walkabout. But God was still watching over his word to perform it. Number six at the heart of this covenant is some essential prophetic promise running right through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob into the rest of the Pentateuch and into the prophets and the Psalms and all the, uh, the uh, right into the New Testament. There is a sense of momentum building up where this beautiful, beautiful person called Yeshua would step onto the stage and he would fulfill the ultimate uh, uh, prophetic uh, fulfillment of being that, that seed that would come. And I, I, I'm not getting into the messianic prophecy and fulfillment or anything like that. I'm getting specifically into the promise and the oath, and it involves the blood of Jesus, but I don't want to lose track of this. So the Abrahamic covenant essentially anticipates the day when a beautiful bundle of baby would be born in Bethlehem, would live the perfect life, would die the perfect death on our behalf, would be raised from the dead in divine approval and exalted by the power of the Holy Spirit to the right hand of God as a fulfillment of so much of what is at the heart of the purposes of God. So the first question is what's so unique about the Genesis 12 promise or the Abrahamic covenant? The second question, and I'm glad you've asked this one too, how did Abraham and Sarah respond to this promise? Well, this is amazing. I want you to notice that in that promise, Genesis 12, we, 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 we have, I will bless you, Abraham. That's what Don Richardson calls top-line blessing. Say top-line blessing. Top blessing to you, Abraham. And then he says, and then uh, I'm going to so work in you so that through you and your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Say bottom-line blessing. All the nations of the earth being targeted with justifying grace, with the blessings of God, with, the, with, with uh, uh, saving grace. God was going to make sure that this message went out and rung out into all the nations of the world. What I find very interesting is the first opportunity that Abraham and Sarah have to be a blessing to a foreign nation, the Egyptians, just a few verses late in Genesis chapter 12, they're on, a, on their way, they're walking because of a famine, and they're talking about where they're going to go, they're going down to Egypt, and so Abraham, this great mighty hunk of a man, this godly husband, who's just received this magnificent promise from God, I mean, his shoulders are back, he's so full of faith, he says to his wife, honey... Yeah, she's got it. <laughs> Honey, when we get down there, Pharaoh's going to look at you and he's going to say, wow, you are so lovely. And he's going to want to have you. But now listen, you got to protect me. So we're going to tell 
Pharaoh that you my sister. I, see, I can speak American, sister. That. And then what happens? She agrees. So Abraham and Sarah, husband and wife, collude to go and be brother and sister. And they fudge it like saying, well, in a way, we sort of are that, you know, more or less. Now, I want to ask you, how many of you at that point would like to be married to the father of our faith, Father Abraham? <laughs> how do you feel about a husband who dangles his wife as bait before a, a, a foreign power ruler? And then they get down there, and true enough, his intuition, the thing he feared, came upon him, and uh, Pharaoh uh, hears about this new couple in town, and just, wow, Sarah is drop-dead gorgeous, and uh, she sings to him, honey, he's making eyes at me, and all that didn't work, because the deal had been done, and she is taken into his presence, but whilst that's happening, guess what's happened? What, what happens? They start to give wealth to Abraham, donkeys, cattle, sheep money, jewelry, men servants, maid servants. I mean, it's incredible. And if you think, oh, but that's just a little bit of an oopsie in Abram's life, you just rush ahead to Genesis chapter 20, and he does the same thing with another pagan king called Abimelech. Now think about it. He goes to Abimelech, exactly the same thing, just tell him this, that, and the other, except Abimelech gets wise to what Abraham is doing. Now, you've got to ask. You've got to put Genesis 20 together with uh, Genesis 12. How did those two pagan kings, well, we know with Abimelech, God speaks to him in a dream. You know those mafia movies where they say, you're as good as dead? <laughs> well, God originated that language. In the dream, God comes to Abimelech and says, you're as good as dead. If you touch this woman, you see, friends, think about it. What's at stake if anyone other than Abraham sleeps with Sarah is the whole forward movement of this, this covenant that God has established. And so what we've got is God, just listen, this is ridiculous, God warning the pagan kings about his own covenant children. I wonder how many times in church history God has had to rescue unbelievers from Christians. <laughs> now, I know none of them here in the Midwest, but I want to tell you, in Cape Town and in other parts of the world, it is, it is, it's an issue. We don't always represent God in the way that we should, and so you've got to, you got to, as this, the first opportunity to be a blessing, sickness breaks over the Egyptians. We don't quite know what the sickness was in Pharaoh's household, but what we do know in Abimelech's house, all the wounds of all the women were closed, which meant the woman had a headache. <laughs> Something like that. It's, I don't know. I'm just being playful. I don't, I don't know what it was. But it, all we know is that from the time Abimelech says to Abraham, here, silver, gold, maidservants, sheep, cattle, have some more stuff. So Abraham essentially is like the sheriff, sheriff of Nottingham in, in, in Robin Hood. One for me, two for me, three for me, four for me, more for me. He's just gathering. What do you think he's preoccupied with, top line or bottom line blessing? 
You guys are such quick learners. He is just fixated on what can flow to him, but that sense of grace and soberness and realization of what needs to flow through him is not in play. God has to deal firmly with these guys. And I don't want to make Abraham look too badly. I just want to, I think we overdo it in making him the, when the New Testament doesn't highlight the weaknesses because it's on that side of the cross, we're inclined to forget about the historical narrative of a person who didn't get it right and he was the first believer justified by faith and he was the first missionary, great commission, who messed it up. I get tremendously encouraged when I see myself in Abraham because it means whatever God does with Abraham, I can trust him to do the same with me. Well, don't be in too much of a hurry to find out what he does with Abraham. <laughs> well, these guys aren't finished messing around, being reckless with the covenant. I think, okay, let's get this thing fulfilled. It's taking too long for Sarah to be pregnant, and we know the whole episode. Sarah comes to sleep with my, my maidservant, uh, Hagar, and uh, Abraham now is, says, oh, are you sure about this love? And I mean, it's, it's bizarre. This is the stuff, father of our faith, he's doing that stuff, but they're colluding. A baby is born called Ishmael, and right now we are living with the hangover of that in, in, in history over the last uh, number of years, centuries, and even millennia. Just, uh, just a very difficult situation. I don't want to get into too much detail on what they did wrong, because all I want us to do is to see ourselves a little in these guys who have been elected, received the, the call of God in their lives, and, and then got reckless and got too preoccupied and sidetracked. In fact, we're a, we're a movement. We gathered together at a non-conference. See, I'm a really good learner, but we're here to strengthen churches and ministries and lives, and we want to strengthen the foundations. This is a message designed to strengthen the foundations because it will inform from the foundations what we'll do, how we'll build on that into the future. And if we want to strengthen churches and plant churches, we got to heat up the red hot why are we doing what we're doing. That's what I'm trying to do with us tonight. I'm trying to heat that up. So here's the third question. How will Yahweh bring them into line. How will he do that? Little question. Is it possible that when you and I, along with Abraham, are not responding like we should, that God in his fatherly kindness would precipitate crisis in our lives to get us to where he wants us to be? Just think of Hebrews 12, whom the Lord loves he chastens and he scourges every child that he receives. And at first, the discipline and the shaping work of God doesn't seem all that palatable, but after it has done its work, it yields the fruit of righteousness. How many of you know we don't get great missionaries without God's deeper work in our lives? We can't play dodgems with discipleship. And what's going on is discipleship issues. He's got a focus that's self-centered and it's top-line obsessed and God wants to convert him fully to his global plan. 
and wants to bring him on board. And folks, this is privilege. When God moves on in your life like that, he's not out of, he can hurt you, but he's not out to harm you. Abraham gets hurt by God in an interesting way. And of course, you know where we're going with this. It's Genesis chapter 22. We don't have, we can't get into all of Genesis chapter 22, but the story is where God essentially uh, asks Abraham to go up to Mount Moriah and sacrifice his one and only son. It seems like God could be saying something like this. Okay, Abraham, you want to be reckless with the covenant? I can also be a bit reckless. Like, don't quote me on this for the sake of those listening to the talk. My name is Brian Barr. (laughs) There is something going on here where it looks like what kind of God is this that would that would put the future fulfillment of the... Abraham's putting at risk. Now God steps in and he says, okay, I can, I'm also going to sober you up on this. And as Abraham is about to, he wasn't going to throw a live child into a fire. Some people see that. No, no, he was going to kill his son and then he would offer the body as a burnt sacrifice. Uh, but and God, as he's about to kill his son, the angel of the Lord stays his hand and says, don't do this, Abraham. Then we read on in Genesis chapter 22, these words. Listen carefully. Now I know, it's on the screens. Now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son. There's something that's happening. Here's the issue. God knows everything. God knew this was going to happen. We don't want to have a, a, a small understanding of God's omniscience. We don't want to shrink it down. But there's something about now is the fulfillment. You have sobered up. Now I can see that you know. It's not God didn't know. It's that the realization, the penny has dropped. Now I can see that you, uh, that you really fear me and you, you, you've not withheld your son, your only son. And then a little later he says this, and the angel of the Lord calls to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and the sand of the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gates of his enemies, and and in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. God adds an oath to the Genesis 12 promise in Genesis chapter 22. Talk is called the promise and the oath. But notice what God adds the oath to. He adds the oath to both the top line and the bottom line. He says, I will surely bless you because you have done this and not withheld your son. I will surely bless you. Top line. And then he says, and I'm going to multiply your offspring, etc., etc., and all the nations of the earth will be blessed. God does the most incredible thing. He adds an oath. Yahweh. Got to ask the question, what's going on? What's going on? How does Yahweh, who has absolutely perfect righteousness and 
when we read in the Bibles, let your yes be yes, swear neither by earth or by heaven, for the earth is his footstool and heaven is his throne, and don't swear by Jerusalem and don't swear by the, the hairs on your head. Jesus forbade swearing, and now you've got the Father right back there swearing, but notice who he swears by. He, he swears by himself. See, God is making an oath, dear friends, not for his own sake. He's making an oath for the beneficiaries of that oath. God needs no reminding. God doesn't slumber nor sleep. He doesn't forget. God has made a commitment. He has he's made a promise. It has to be fulfilled. But when God adds an oath, he's adding the oath for those recipients and for future generations who are going to align their lives to his missional and covenantal purposes in the world. So let's go to Hebrews chapter 6 and read this with me because this is, this is where the meat is on where I want us to get. I'm going to unpack the whole of Hebrews, just a few thoughts out of this. It says in verse 13 of chapter 6, for when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, say it out loud, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having waited patiently, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. In his lifetime, whatever God wanted to fulfill was fulfilled. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation, or it puts an end to all arguments, some translations say. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchanging nature of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things, the promise and the oath, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. I'm just trying to feed, go and do some Bible studies on that. It's absolutely amazing. God makes an oath because it's in second to the incarnation. That God assumes human form. God making an oath is like the second most condescending thing God could do because what he's doing is he's entering into the arena of human fallenness and because there's credibility crisis among humans and they make promises and oaths and cut covenant and all that to be taken sincerely, God says, how do I get through to the thick skulls of my people in this generation and future generations? I'm going to add an oath. I'm going to use the language that they use, but now I got to swear by something so he looks around, he says, well, I'm going to swear on Abraham's life. Oh, I can't do that. Abraham's the guy who lies. <laughs> then he looks around, he thinks, well, let's, let's swear by the angels, because those guys have always, well, there are a few fallen ones, and angels are still created being, you know, who knows what could happen in the future with some angels. Okay, don't, 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 I don't want to feed your fantasy about, you know, possibilities. But, and then he looks around, and he says, well, I, 
you know, Sarah, mm, great woman, but boy, all that colluding and stuff. And, and then God says, well, I'm, if I'm going to swear to bring real integrity to this moment, I'm going to swear by the nature of the most perfect person in the universe. I'm going to swear by myself. Do you know that it's only self-centered and self-seeking when it's not true? God swore on the basis of his own perfect, holy righteousness, his unblemished track record. God says, on the basis of that, I'm now adding an oath to my original covenant. And he adds it specifically to all nations of the earth will be blessed. Now we've got a problem because God promised and if he messes up, his reputation is trashed. But if he's added an oath, he will perjure himself. God would be in serious trouble if there's no plan B, people. God is going to reach and have an inheritance, the reward of the suffering of his son on Calvary's cross. He is going to have a reward for his suffering out of every kindred, tribe, people, tongue, and nation. And he has sworn by himself. And he added the oath when Abraham was aligned, and he's still doing that work in our lives and our discipleship. He aligns us and assures us. Aligns us and assures us. He's the prototype missionary that we can learn from. Who's the oath for? Now, this is where I want you to sense the holy hush that is going down here. It's not because of me. There's something so profound. Who is the oath for? Now, we know on Mount Moriah, Abraham is offering up Isaac. We also know that Mount Moriah is very close proximity to where David built the temple, and it's very close proximity where Jesus eventually would die on a cross for the sins of the world. But on that hill, when God says to Abraham the second time, now I know that you fear me, Paul, the writer to the Hebrews, it wasn't Paul, it was Barnabas or somebody else, the writer to the Hebrews says this, so when God desired to show convincingly to the heirs of the promise, who are the heirs of the promise? On Mount Moriah, not exclusively 230 people in this room, but including 230 people in the room, God made an oath because he wanted to show convincingly to the heirs of what was promised. What did he want to show? The unchanging character of his purpose. So God made an oath for the heirs. Who are the heirs? Galatians 6. 29 says, if you are in Jesus, then you are Abraham's seed, and you are an heir according to the promise. Turn to the person next to you. If they're in Jesus, say, you are an heir according to the promise. You are an heir according to the promise. And so what does the oath do to the heirs? Number one, it's supposed to put an end to all arguments. 
It's supposed to secure us and anchor us. He wants to convince us. And the most perfect being in the universe has acted into history in the, in the promise. And now he's acted on Mount Moriah and it's explained to us what was going down there. He had us in his sights. He anticipated us down through the corridors of time. And he says, I want you to be assured. I want you to be anchored. He says, I want you to be encouraged. Folks, this is a strengthening time. You don't get it better than this. It's not the preacher. It's the message. You don't get more secure and strengthened when, when you understand that God will not change his mind about you. If you're elected, unfortunately, you're also selected for God's transformation from consumer to missionary. It's his plan for all of us, for God's purpose to be fulfilled. There needs to be a work of conversion in the church of Jesus. In our ma- and how do I know it should happen now? It's because we, the world is just, and the church is full of consumers. I'm not getting mad because lots of people come to Jesus as consumers, and Jesus did that with a crowd of consumers, but he, he condemned consumerism in the crowd, but he never condemned the crowd in consumerism. So don't have that sheriff badge and saying everybody's that's not as, as hungry and for revival as you are, they're just consumers. No, God's still at work in everybody, but God wants to locate us in the story and, and uh, align our, our passions and our, as we heard in those prophetic words, So what is the last point? Hey, we doing okay on time, huh? So what? <laughs> exactly, so what? <laughs> okay. So what? Why do we need to hear this stuff over and over? Because here is the secret to a rich, full, secure identity. How do you know? You might not have a great family tree, but this teaching shows us that we don't just get a new future in Jesus. We also get a brand new past. We get a past that God says you Abraham seeds. God roots you into a narrative. Guys, your narrative is not your local church. Your local church is a servant to this narrative. We get a new history. We are like those guys who've got roots and roots. And what the gospel does, it severs an overexposure to the dark side of our roots in the past. It deals with it, and it plugs us into the new roots of the Abrahamic covenant. And folk, there is a, this, when more this gets into us, the more, and this is what happened in my life. I come from a, a home when my dad encouraged me to leave home when I became a Christian. Uh, fortunately, I... I met a girlfriend who's now my wife, and, and uh, you know, their family was warm and welcoming. But I, it was like God used this stuff to burn off my life, so many of my insecurities, and to root me in a narrative. And I'm not saying that it's like that for everyone. Please don't hear that. We, many of us need help at different seasons in our lives. But I want to do, do want to ask you to put your shoulders back tonight. If your faith is in Jesus... If your faith is in Jesus, then you are rooted in a 4,000-year-old narrative of redemptive history 
that God is involved in, the Holy Spirit's at work in, and there are horizons that, are, that will be reached and that this message that God has ordained is unstoppable. I have people ask from time to time, is there really a, a future for the church? Better question. Is there a church in the future? And the answer to that is yes, because the head of that church is in the heavens. And he has gone behind the sanctuary. And he has shed his blood. And there is still multitudes of people that are going to come home. And there is a, a, a beautiful moment in Revelation chapter 5 and verse 9 that anticipates a day when they sang a new song, multitudes singing, you are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you're slain. And with your blood, you purchase men and peoples for God from every tribe and language and tongue and nation. Don Richardson tells two stories about alignment. These are two stories about alignment. The one is, you know those big electric power cables? Now, I'm not a scientist, but I'm told that if you have got those big electric power cables and just in close proximity, you take a puny little copper wire. You don't touch the big ones, dangerous. You just put it in parallel. There's the possibility of a power surge. And he says, what we've got to take is take our puny, ordinary little lives and get it a little closer to these giant uh, cables of God's empowered purposes in history and experience those frequent little power surges every time we start reading about God's unchangeable purposes that he didn't only promise, but he backed up with an oath. Is this, is this helpful? Now, I'm about to embarrass myself a little bit, and then we're going to pray. Another little scientific thing. If you know more about what I'm about to say, please just keep it to yourself. But his other story, he's got, he knew the science. I just remember some of these things, vaguely trying to put it together this afternoon. And, but, but it goes something like this. The point is magnificent. If you want to take an atomic, an atom, and you want to, and you want to accelerate it to become more powerful, you want to take an atom and you want to accelerate it to become, to increase power and momentum, read into that. If you want to take a Christian, who's living on barely get along street down Grumble Alley. If you want to help them, three conditions need to be filled. Number one, they need to be a charged particle to begin with, that atom, that Christian. Number two, they need to be caught in the powerful grip of a magnetic field. A local Christian community that worships Jesus regularly and gets their, their life and their experience animated by the presence and power of the Holy Spirit on a regular basis. And that church is in a movement that they are aligned to take this message to regions beyond, like Daniel, who and his wife, uh, Marsha, who went to Thailand, preached a church, and now they're up in the hill country. They preached two more churches, and they got... Tons and tons of people coming to faith and baptizing people in the tens. Totally unreached people. These are the people who, who got aligned to the purposes of God. And nobody knows about it. It doesn't make the evening news. It doesn't get recorded on, in newspapers. 
It can feel like nothing is happening. But I want to tell you what's happening in the heavens. When God looks down, he looks at these local faith communities who are animated by the life of his son, and he rejoices, and the angels in heaven are rejoicing because we're being part of what God is doing, his unstoppable mission as we're aligned, his purposes. There's a magnetic field. We need to be charged particles to begin with, born again of the Spirit of God. We need not, you can't just be born again on your own in your home and twiddle your thumbs and read your Bible and say, it's all about me and Jesus. No, we're in community. We've got brothers and sisters on either side of our lives. Heaven is a family. And we've got to live in the family now to get ready for what it's going to really be like up there. So we've got to be in this magnetic field. And, and the fourth one is you accelerate it down a long tunnel. The 4,000-year-old. Abrahamic covenant, confirmed with an oath, with God's reputation on the line, saying there is no plan B, and there's no plan B for my plans, and there's no plan B for my, my, my church, because if you're elected, then you're selected to be a missionary, and I'm going to use you in all unique and wonderful ways, and here's the good news, people, there are no ordinary assignments in the kingdom, because if you're called to be a deacon, if you're called to be an usher, if you're called to be a worship leader, if you're called to be a preacher, if you're called to be a, an apostle, if you're called to be a prophet, there are no ordinary assignments. If you're called to wait on tables, if you're called to babysit, none of those things should we demean because if you're called, your call comes from God and the size of our task and the value of our task does not lie in what we do. It lies in the one who called us and gave us grace to do it and we need to be an army of people that are aligned to this beautiful, cosmic, global purpose of God. And we need to get this thing and we've got to teach on the pastors and preachers and teachers. We've got to teach our people into this, get them anchored, teach the great doctrines of justification by faith, which was Abraham was the prototype of. We've got to feast on that. And uh, Martin Luther says, that's the doctrine we leak most. You can be saved for 30 years and you still get into works righteousness from time to time. Abraham had to realize, and he was humbled by the amazing goodness of God, and we need to go over that, over and over, and I think I've done enough now, I love it, what do you think, did I, did I handle those notes that you gave me, okay, sweetie? <laughs> Guys, I'm, 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 this is a weighty stuff, but I'm, I'm doing it in the lightest way I know, because it is so life-giving, and uh, I want to ask you are, you, are you ready, We that prophetic word about saying some no's to something, in the favor of some yeses, and I think uh, God was bringing, uh, wrestled him to the ground, Abraham, and there's some some stuff in our life. We, let me ask you a question. Are you still too fixated on the top line blessings? Do you need a, do you need a selection journey with God where you just, he but are you still addicted to wealth creation and the good life? You still got those things that are just good things that just become too important. God says, you want a life? I've got a life for you. You want a life? I've got a life for you. My son, my daughter, it's beyond anything you could dream. Stop selling yourself short. And as my elected ones and my selected ones, let's do this together. Let's be these born-again people caught in the magnetic field of the church, aligned to the purposes of God. If you're in a church that's not in a movement, we are... We, we're not selling anything, and we don't want you to buy anything if you're just checking out what we're about. But there's nothing like being in a side-by-side, shoulder-to-shoulder uh, partnership in the gospel where we are serving one another. 
where we're weeping with one another. Sat with a bunch of pastors today. My heart is still so tender from being with all the pastors, hearing the stories from the Midwest here. Sue and I are going to cry when we leave on the airport. We're going to leave our hearts here, hoping that we'll, we'll get, I've probably done enough damage. I'm never being invited back. But whatever the thing is, we love you guys so, so very much. Why don't you stand? Let's pray. We're going to build on this tomorrow, and there's going to be momentum going forward. Why don't you take a hand across the aisles? The band's going to sing. I'm just going to lead us in a, in a prayer, and then we're going to celebrate God's goodness and faithfulness. We want to get this thing of we're in this together. This is a, we need each other. We really need each other. Father, we want to thank you for the scriptures. We want to thank you for your your activity in history. Thank you that you're not the God of deism who creates a world, winds it up with natural law and then goes on a distant journey and leaves us to get on with it. Thank you that you're the God who creates the world and you have creator rights. But you're such a loving creator that you step into the brokenness of a fallen world and you Your love is so rich and so focused that you find a way to reconcile us to yourself. And then you include us in what you want to do. God, it's too good to be true, and yet it's true. We want to thank you that you don't only have creator rights, you have redeemer rights, because Jesus, when you hung on the cross, God was in Christ reconciling the whole world to himself. Thank you that you care about our world. And we're not into transactionalism. We're not just into programs. We carry your very heart and your compassion for the world. And you want to stand together as your people tonight saying, Jesus, make us to be ministers of reconciliation in this broken world. Anchor us, secure us, fill us with assurance that there is no plan B and you're doing a deep work in us to make us part of your unstoppable mission in the world. Lord, we pray for every person on either side of our hand tonight. Renew our lives, we pray. Renew our loves. Renew our relationships. Renew our minds. Lord, you're the God who makes all things new. Why don't you do a work of renewal in our lives as we stand before you in your presence, as we worship you, as we say yes to what you're calling us to in this great adventure. Let's take the worship time, let's take these songs and we can let go of the hands and let's together fill this atmosphere with worship, with alignment. With our big yes. Let's go for a church.